Let's turn again to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue our exposition of this book of the Bible. We're going to be finishing chapter 2 today. Um, like we did with chapter 1, I'm not actually going to read the whole text beforehand. We'll sort of walk through it together, and so we'll end up reading most, if not all, of the verses as we go. But before we jump in, let's ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we do thank you so much for your mercies to us. I ask that you would help us to understand this text this morning, that we would come before you and recognize the great danger that lies at hand with the enemy of our souls, and at the same time, the great mercies that are ours, and the great comfort and protection that exists in the banner who is Christ Jesus. We love you. We ask you to send your spirit now in this time. And bless the preaching of the word. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 The title of this uh, sermon, I don't always have one, but I do today, is The Serpent in the Shadow of the Sanctuary. Now, you'll recall that uh, several months ago, Paul preached to us a sermon from Revelation 12. I think it was the introduction to Revelation 12, the text about the woman and the dragon. And in so doing, he took us back to Genesis 3.15 and showed how much of redemptive history can be summed up as the conflict between two seeds. You had the seed of the woman on the one hand and the seed of the serpent on the other. And that that conflict is really just a reflection of the, the greater cosmic conflict that goes on between God's Christ and Satan himself. With the wicked line attempting at all times to kill and to cut off the godly line before the coming of the promised seed. And that conflict can rightly be described, as Paul did, as a, as a war between two seeds. And there is yet another way to view this, this conflict as manifesting not only in the existence of two seeds, but of two kingdoms. We're familiar with this. We have the kingdom of God on the one hand and the kingdom of Satan on the other hand. And the kingdom of Satan is characterized by the worship of everything that is not God. Men's sensual lusts are exalted there is whoring after material gain, a hatred and mockery of everything that is good and godly and right. And fundamentally, that kingdom is ruled by the dogma that whatever a man wills in his heart, that it is which is right for him. In contrast to that is the kingdom of God. Of course, where the, the true worshipers of God are transformed in heart and mind, and they worship God in spirit and in truth. And it is characterized by a hatred of evil and a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Now, fundamentally, both of these kingdoms have their origin internally. The fact that a kingdom manifests itself externally exists because there are internal operations in the hearts of all men. Men are either ruled by sin or they are ruled by the principle of righteousness. And both of these kingdoms, which begin with the issues of the heart, inevitably must come forth in a visible, tangible, and manifestable way. There is evidence that you can look around and see in the created order that both of these kingdoms do exist and are going forth in this world. And there is warfare between these two kingdoms, as we've said. Satan has two primary methods of attack. One, as we've already said, is he can attempt to assault and cut off and kill the kingdom of God and the line of the godly. When we view it from the perspective of two seeds, that's most often the method of attack that we see Satan using, assault and violence. But when viewed from the perspective of the kingdoms more broadly, Satan's second method of operations is that he attempts to corrupt 
and to infiltrate the visible manifestations of God's kingdom wherever they arise and to corrupt them from within so that fundamentally they begin to take on the characteristics of Satan's kingdom itself. He introduces false sons into the visible kingdom who will commit wickedness all while claiming the name of God and his kingdom. And at the same time, he will also play upon the remaining lusts of those who are true sons of the kingdom in an attempt to get them to stumble and fall and bring contempt and reproach upon the name of God. And we see this this happening right from the beginning, of course, with Cain and Abel. Now, we talked about from the perspective of the seeds, you have the seed of the serpent, Cain, who is assaulting Abel, the, the seed of the woman. But before that assault takes place, you may remember that, that Cain actually profaned the visible manifestation of God's kingdom. Because what was happening right after the fall? Some people were regenerated, and there was worship within that first family that centered around the altar. There was something you could point to and look at and say, here is evidence that a change has been wrought in somebody's heart and that the kingdom of God is going forth. We have faithful worshipers. And yet before Cain ever slew Abel, he went up to the altar, the manifestation of God's kingdom on the earth, and he profaned it with false and polluted worship. Before there was the physical assault, there was the attempt to corrupt the manifestation of God's kingdom. We see this pattern continuing throughout the Old Testament. Uh, we have the sons of God in Genesis 6 uh, intermingling with the daughters of men. This, this dynamic goes on in Noah and his family, Joseph and his brothers, and fundamentally the Israelites themselves as they come out of bondage. Satan, on the one hand, attempts to kill and destroy them through Pharaoh and his army. But when that doesn't work, what does he immediately do once they're in the wilderness? He brings the Moabite women along and parades them in front of the sons of Israel to play upon their lusts and to get them to act like they are members of Satan's kingdom. And so this back and forth kingdom warfare continues for centuries But my assertion to you is that it eventually settles around the the, the warfare between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom comes to settle around one particular object, and that is the tabernacle. Now, uh, I I want you to, to recall for a moment the introduction of the tabernacle. Moses, in Exodus chapter 24, is called up upon the mountain by God. And as he does so, God descends in the cloud of glory, and and God and Moses commune together. And for the first time since the fall, someone who is not passing on to their eternal state is actually communing with God in his glorious presence. You had, you know, Genesis 18 with the, the men who come and visit Abraham, and it turns out that the men were a manifestation of God himself. But that was in a veiled form. For the first time, God has manifested himself in glory to a person and has brought them into his presence. And then he instructs Moses to go down off of the mountain and to build a replica of the very thing that he saw and experienced up on the top of the mountain. And he builds the tabernacle. And God promises that he will take what Moses experienced in some form and he will condescend and fill that tabernacle with a manifestation of the glory that Moses experienced. And in so doing, God preached in types and shadows that it was his intention to provide some mechanism for sinners to once again be able to come into his presence. And so therefore, when God does that and sets that tabernacle right there in the middle of the desert, he is announcing 
that the work of his kingdom up until the coming of Christ will center upon what takes place in that tent. And Satan knows this. He knows this. Because what is Satan's role at this point in time? He is the accuser of the brethren, is he not? It is his job to stand there, and any time a sinner may have the opportunity to come into God's presence, he is to bring a charge and say, you cannot justly let this sinner into your presence. Justice won't allow it. They are wicked and evil. You, God, are holy. They have no business being with you. And the fact that God has put this tent here was not only a proclamation to the people of their opportunity for reconciliation, but it was a proclamation to Satan that God intended to overcome his ability to accuse the saints justly, that he would overcome Satan's role. And so Satan knows this. And so it becomes, I would assert to you, from that moment of the the building of the tabernacle, Satan knows that if he is to corrupt the kingdom of God and get it to be wiped off the face of the earth prior to the coming of the seed, then he must get his hands on that tent. He must pollute it, and he must destroy everything that it stands for. But then it's quite interesting in the Scripture, as you're, if you're reading chronologically through it. After we get out of the wilderness and they, and they enter into the land, all of a sudden this tabernacle, which had so much significance, disappears from view. And for centuries, we only get just passing references to its existence. But we see, we see no real uh, ongoing work that we get to view. We just get in the book of Joshua and Judges a couple of hints like I said, at its continued existence. Instead, the focus of the narrative shifts to the people. And there are repeated cycles of corruption and being restored by God and then falling into idolatry again and again and again. And, uh, and despite this corruption, though, we are meant to have in the back of our minds that, that there exists this bulwark that God has established against Satan. One place that God has set his name. And, and throughout those, those, those narratives, our, while our attention is elsewhere, we do get kind of lulled into a false sense that the, that the tabernacle is safe and secure. And this sort of culminates, like we saw last time, in Hannah's prayer. And in Hannah's prayer, our eyes are, are directed as high as they can go to the glorification that awaits the saints and the exaltation of the horn of God's anointed. And as we are enraptured by the the, the glory that awaits God's people, it is as if now the author of this narrative takes our eyes and all of a sudden rips us back down. And what are we forced to look at? The tabernacle. But it's not the tabernacle as we remember it. It's not the tabernacle of Exodus 40 where God sent his glory and it was so majestic that Moses himself could not even enter it. Instead, what we see in this narrative that we're going to go through today is that the hordes of Satan, while we weren't looking, have overrun the tabernacle. They're here. The serpent, as it were, has slithered his way into the sanctuary when we weren't looking. So I want us to see two primary things from this text. First, we're going to look at Satan's corrupting attacks very broadly. We'll see how Satan goes about trying to corrupt the visible manifestation of God's kingdom. And then secondly, we will look at God's response to all of this. So then first, and you can, we're going to be going through the text now so you can have your Bibles ready to go. We're going to look at Satan's corrupting attacks. I want you to notice first the agents of his corruption, the agents that Satan uses to achieve his corrupting ends. We'll see this in the first half of verse 12. And we read there, 
Now the sons of Eli, full stop, the men who are identified as corrupting the tabernacle in this narrative are the sons of Eli. And what do we know about these men already? What do we know about Eli? Eli is of the tribe of Levi, but he's not just of the tribe of Levi. He is of the priesthood. He is a priest unto God most high. And his sons, therefore, are also priests. So the men identified here are God's Levitical priesthood, members of it. Now let's take a moment and remind ourselves of what some of the priestly duties were. First and foremost, priests are responsible for helping to facilitate worshipers enter the presence of God. That's what they are first and foremost to do. And they do this primarily by facilitating the sacrifices that God had instituted. Sac- uh, worshipers would bring a sacrifice, and the job of the priest was to help the worshiper carry out the mandates that God had given that he might perform his sacrifice and his offering unto the Lord. They were also to enforce holiness and the general sanctification or setting apart of God's house. Uh, you can see this in the fact that if a ceremonially unclean person were to attempt to enter into the tabernacle and later the temple, it was the job of the priest to put that person to death. No unclean outsider was allowed to enter the sacred space that God had set his presence. They were to enforce the holiness of God's law and the separation of his house from sinners who were not able to come in if they had not been ceremonially cleansed. And we can say without any hesitation that this job of priesthood is the most significant occupation that is available to the sons of men at this point in history. There's nothing that has more weightiness and significance than to, at this time, be one of God's priests. Because as we've said, God has actually condescended to make a way for sinners to come near to himself. He set up his presence in the midst of polluted and defiled people when they ought to be consumed. And then he has set apart from there a small group of people who have the awesome privilege of facilitating communion between mankind and their creator. That's who a priest is. That's what we're talking about here. Now, that's their identity, their priest. We see next their description in the second half of verse 12. We read, the sons of Eli were worthless men. The Hebrew phrase there is sons of Belial. That word Belial is composed of two Hebrew words. It's a compound. Belai, Belai, without, and Yaal means to have value. So to be called a son of Belial is to be a son of one who is without value. Most of you are aware that that biblical phrase, sons of, is used throughout the scripture. And it's meant to indicate that someone shares the essential characteristics of the thing they're said to be a son of. You have the sons of lawlessness, those who partake in being against the law or without the righteousness of the law. Jesus talks about, uh, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Why? Because they're partaking of peacemaking, which is an attribute of God. God is a God who reconciles and who makes peace. And so these men, as they are described as sons of worthlessness, it is being uh, predicated of them that they have no value as to their very person. Now, consider what we often say, that every person is made in the image of God and therefore has some inherent value, right? We we say that all the time. And yet, while there is definitely some truth to that, there's another side of this where, at least from God's perspective, 
are, people can be so polluted with sin that when he views them, he actually sees no worth or value in their life because sin is so inherently repulsive to him. So they're described as worthless men having no value. And then we are told the reason for their worthlessness. And it's not, he doesn't just list all their specific sins right away. He will. But he sums it up fundamentally in this. They did not know the Lord. Now, these men are priests. Of, they know they've been set apart as priests of a God called Yahweh. Okay? As we say all the time, the, the, the phrase know the Lord goes far beyond a, a mental knowledge or assent to facts about God or to his existence. What these men fundamentally lack is an intimacy of knowing God as the supreme desire and affection of their hearts. They don't have that. They don't know God in the way that a person whose heart has been changed can and does know God. So these men work in God's house, but yet they do not know the owner of the house. So then, Satan's corrupting attacks are begun... He has sort of, as it were, hijacked God's priests. They're not innocent bystanders in this. He's simply taking the lusts that are in their heart, and he is using them to his own advantage. So that's the agents of corruption. They're priests, Eli's sons. Notice next the method of corruption that Satan uses, uh, the the way in which he attempts to defile God's tabernacle. And this can best be seen by, by just taking a look at the specific sins of these men that are listed. The first sin that they are guilty of is theft. We see this in verses 13 and 14. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all of the Israelites who came there. Now, you'll be, I'm sure most of you are aware that in Leviticus 7, God addresses these types of sacrifices, these free will offerings, is probably what's, what's mostly in view here. And God had specifically said that when a person brings a free will offering, the priest does have an allotment of that animal. They would get the breast and the right thigh as sort of their contribution for the work that they would do. The priest has to eat, after all. Some portion was set aside for God, as we'll talk about in a second. And the rest of the animal would be the worshippers. The worshipper would get to consume the rest of the animal and share a meal with his God. But God had given a portion to the priest. And yet these men are not satisfied with God's provision for them because they come in and they take some or all, not only of their portion, but of the worshipper's portion of the meat as well. So they're not only robbing the, the people of the food that they would get, but more fundamentally... They're robbing the people of their opportunity to commune with their God. They're stealing from the people. Second sin that they're guilty of, sacrilege. Sacrilege is just the profaning of something that has been sanctified or set apart by God himself. In Leviticus chapter 3, we're told that in these sacrificial arrangements, the fat is the Lord's. Most people read that verse in in Leviticus and kind of chuckle. The fat belongs to the Lord. But but there's a reason for that. The fat is the juiciest, meatiest part. I know a lot of times we'll cut off the fat and push it to the side, but you've got to put yourself in the, the context of living in a desert with very little nutrition. Okay? It's quite tasty. And so God had said that that portion, the, the best portion, would be set aside for him and that it was to be burned upon the altar. 
and that he was to receive it first before the worshiper or the priest interacted with their food. And yet these men go in and specifically target the fat of the offering, and they say, we want that portion first and foremost for ourselves. And then they put their polluted, defiling hands upon it, and therefore they are profaning what God has set apart for himself. And thus the whole sacrificial enterprise is being profaned in the process. So they're committing sacrilege. Thirdly, these men are guilty of being violent, hostile, and abusive shepherds. And you'll see this in verse 16. And if a man, this would be a worshiper, uh, said to him, let me burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. We said a second ago that priests were sacrifice facilitators. That was part of their vocation. But they are far more, in, in an ideal sense, they are to be far more than just a sacrifice facilitator. These people are to shepherd God's sheep. They are God's representatives to the people. They were to reflect the tender, loving care that God has for His people to the people. They were to be a reflection of, of how God views and cares for His people in their interactions with the rest of Israel. But instead, they are acting like thugs who intimidate and threaten to assault anyone who will not join them in the profaning of God's worship. And so we see here they are basically the quintessential example of fleecers of the flock. They have no regard for God's care and concern for His sheep. And so the people can feel that as they interact with them. And then fourthly, the, the, the next sin that we see is actually over in verse 22. And that is that these men have turned the sanctuary into a brothel. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now I want you to consider for a moment the heinousness of this. Because unlike the guy who Phineas stabbed through, who was sleeping with the Midianite woman, these men don't have the common decency and courtesy to take their fornications to their own home. These men are fornicating and committing sexual debauchery with people right in front of the place where El Shaddai sits enthroned upon the mercy seat. And you'll know, I'm sure, from, from ancient paganism that you've read about, and certainly modern paganism, that prostitution and fornication are integral parts of Satan's kingdom. They are like one of the hallmark staples of the work of Satan upon the earth, and specifically the places of its worship. You think about all the times in the Old Testament that you read about the pagan temples, and what's one of the features? Prostitution, male cult prostitutes. Every kind of sexual debauchery is a hallmark of Satan's kingdom. And so the fact that he's brought this into God's tabernacle shows us what? That Satan is attempting to take what was once God's kingdom bulwark upon the earth and to transform it into something that looks just like his kingdom. That's what he's doing here. The tabernacle has now become a place where man's covetousness is indulged, where things that God has sanctified for himself are profaned, where his sheep, God's sheep, are abused and despised, and where debauchery permeates the atmosphere. That's what the tabernacle has become now in these days. And so that is the method of Satan's corruption. He takes the crowning jewel of God's pre-incarnation kingdom and he makes it to where it's barely distinguishable from the whore of Babylon. Next, we will see Satan's indirect agent of corruption. 
So far, the defilers of God's kingdom, the sons of Eli, we can safely assume are unregenerate men. Okay? These are not true worshipers of God. They are false sons of the kingdom. But things get even worse when we consider another man whose actions further facilitate Satan's assaults. And that, of course, is Eli. Now, most of church history, and just from the text, we don't have any reason to conclude that he is unregenerate. Most people tend to believe that he was a true worshiper of God, and I would take that side as well. And so lest we be tempted to think that it's only unregenerate men that Satan uses to profane God's kingdom, Eli shows us that Satan will also play upon the remaining corruptions and sin in the heart of God's saints to further corrupt God's church. And we see Eli's uh, failures most clearly in verses 23 through 25. Let's read them now. And he, this is Eli, said to them, his sons, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of Israel, uh, people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Now, pretty much everyone who comments on this text in any way says that Eli's, plea, Eli's uh, resistance to his sons rose no higher than a half-hearted pleading with his mouth to stop. And that's true. That's pretty much what we see here. He gives no real effort. And so we see that Eli is suffering from primarily two besetting sins. First, he has a greater love in this moment for his sons than for the Lord. Now, if he's truly regenerate, this is not true in an absolute sense. He does not absolutely love his sons more than the Lord. But we as Christians can and should relate to the struggle of having the Lord as the supreme object of our affections and yet always being under the tempting influence to elevate other affections above God at any moment in time. We can relate to this. This is the, the ground zero. This is the... the clear manifestation of what's going on in the heart of a regenerate person. They're, they love the Lord, but they always have warring passions that are assaulting them and attempting them to uh, commit idolatry. That's his first sin. He is placing his sons above the Lord. The second sin that he's guilty of is spiritual laziness. Eli has an obligation under God's law to do something, to act. God's law says, that if your son or your daughter continues in obstinate rebellion, you are to bring that child, no matter the age, to the entrance of the, the gates of the city, of the society, set him before the elders and say, this my son is a rebellious child and will not heed correction. And then you are to cast the first stone as the rest of the society joined in after you. That's what God's law had told him to do. He was to stone his sons. They've given clear evidence that they will not repent. And they're certainly old enough to be subject to this punishment. But he will not act. He does not do anything. He just sort of says something and hopes that it will have an impact. But he will not actually fully obey God's law. So we see it's not just uh, evil, unregenerate men. Satan is also using the corruptions of Eli's own heart to facilitate the continued rebellion of his sons and the profanation of God's tabernacle. Now, what are some of the consequences of Satan's attack upon the tabernacle? Uh, I cut this section much shorter than it was originally, so I'm just going to briefly list them. These are things that are not only implicit in this text, but that we see kind of all throughout the Old Testament. Whenever God's worship is being profaned, we see the following things. 
First, a decline of reverential religion amongst the people. If you are a true worshiper of God and you walk up to the tabernacle and you're excited and you've got your sacrifice and you're ready to commune, and as you get to the entrance, you see Hophni or Phinehas coming out from behind the curtain, kind of with their clothes disheveled, and a woman following after them. What is that going to do to your attitude and to your heart as you're attempting to worship God? It's going to profane it. It's going to make it really hard to, to get yourself in the right mindset to worship the Lord. And the inevitable result of that over time, as more and more people are discouraged from worshiping God, is that religion slowly dissipates throughout the nation and declines. The second consequence is the quenching of the light of God's holiness amongst the nations. This people was supposed to be set apart, God said, as a city upon a hill. He said, when the nations around you look at you, they ought to say to themselves, what God is this with law so righteous and holy? And look at the, the behavior of his people. They are so different, so set apart. They're not at all like us. And that was to provoke their hearts and to stir them to seek the Lord further. But when an Israelite now tries to go and, uh, and uh, proselytize, for lack of a better word, his, his unregenerate uh, comp- uh, associations out in the rest of the nations, they, all they have to do is look back at what's going on in the tabernacle and say, that's the God that you're trying to get me to worship? doesn't seem like he's all that different from my God. My God's into all that same kind of debauchery. So why exactly would I come and worship your God? And the people no longer have the ability to shine the light of God's holiness around them. Thirdly, the departing of God's presence. Now, this is threatened here in this text, as we'll see. But but God is under no obligation to stay with this people. And if they will not take his worship seriously, he has already threatened that he will indeed leave them. He will not bear with a people who will not uphold his holiness. And we'll see that throughout the Old Testament. God does indeed abandon this people for a time and a season. So then, in conclusion to that... uh, brief exposition, we see that Satan's goal is to corrupt the kingdom of God wherever it manifests itself most forcefully on the earth. That's what he goes for. Whatever it is, wherever God has set his name and his presence, that's where Satan goes and brings the fight. And in the case of these Israelites, there is nothing inherent in them that is sufficient to repel this onslaught from Satan. Nothing inherent in them. But... Just as all seems hopeless, we see, secondly, God's response to all of this. As we said, God has every right to abandon this people and to be done with the whole enterprise, but, but, God will keep his word. He will keep it. And he has already sworn long ago to Abraham and that his offspring would come and that the nations of the earth would be blessed through him. And so God will keep that promise, and so he will not utterly wipe this people out at this point, though he'd be just to do so. And so God actually responds, and rather than cutting them off, he brings the warfare right back at Satan. And we see him do this in two ways in this text. First, we'll see God's judgment of the defilers. And secondly, God's raising up of a faithful servant. First then, God's judgment of the defilers. In this text, both Eli's unregenerate sons and Eli himself, who are guilty of profaning God's sanctuary, are swiftly dealt with. We see first Eli's sons. 
We see it in verse 25b, the second half of verse 25. After Eli has just uh, given his half-hearted pleading to the sons to stop, we read the narrator's comment here, but they, the sons, would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, I want you to notice that, the way that sentence is written, because it, it can come at you quick. Most people who are quickly reading through this narrative would, would read those words, but would almost reinterpret them or retranslate them in their mind to say something like this. The sons would not listen, so it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's not what it says. It says they would not listen because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, brothers and sisters, we enter here on on one of those brief moments where the the curtain of God's providence is is pulled back just a hair, and you can kind of see in. And it's a very mysterious and terrible thing that is revealed here. What we are have just been told, is that God can and will harden a man in his sins so that he will no longer listen to the voice of correction with the goal that he continue walking in his own ways to his own destruction and receive that just end. Now, consider this for a moment. When God does this to Hophni and uh, and Phinehas, when he does this to them, It's not like they can sense something is happening. It's not like they can feel like all of a sudden God has come in and and sort of pushed the override button and is now operating them like a robot, and they can just sense, I'm doing something against my will. No, for them, this feels natural. They're doing exactly what they desire to do in refusing to listen to the counsel of their father. In their minds, it feels like they just reasoned the whole thing out He tells me not to do this. I'd really rather keep doing that, so I'm going to keep going. They can't say, ah, yes, now God has hardened me, and my decisions to spurn correction are the result of his having sealed me into this condition. For them, it's as natural as breathing. And yet we see here in just a brief moment that their decisions to do so, though they bear all the responsibility for it, are the result of God's own decretive judgment upon them. Now, I don't pretend to be able to explain to you the mechanics of how that works from God's perspective. That is beyond me, far beyond me. But I know that his word says it. And I can also tell from his word that there are primarily two types of people who are the subjects of this particular type of judgment. The first is those who actively seek to assault and kill God's people. You think Pharaoh, right? God hardened his heart. The second type are those who infiltrate the assembly of God and claim to be Uh, sons of the kingdom, but who remain in a state of rebellion and unrepentant sin. Those are the other types of people who are the subject of this judgment in Scripture. And so if you are in this room and you profess to belong to God, but in your heart of hearts you are still unrepentant, you are a prime candidate, and I don't say this lightly, for God to inflict this kind of judgment upon you. And it's a scary thing, and it's a sobering thing. He'll harden you to your own destruction, and you'll have no one to blame but your own stubborn heart. And so God vows to destroy Eli's sons by hardening them to their fate. We see, secondly, God responding and judging Eli, the defiler. We see this in verses 27 to 36. I will not read the the whole portion. I'll just sort of uh, 
hit the relevant parts that I want to discuss because I want to keep the big picture in mind here. In this, in this portion of the scripture, God sends, as he often does when he wants to get something done, his word. He sends out his word. And so he sends a prophet to the man of God, Eli, and he has a message for him. And the message that God gives to Eli is kind of structured as almost a, a lawsuit, that God is enacting a lawsuit against Eli. And Just, just follow the way he, he carries this out. First, God begins by recalling his own actions in regard to Eli and his sons, the, the past mercies that he had given to Eli and his house. Notice what he says here. This is in verse 27. Did I indeed, and the ESV translates these as questions, and I think some other texts do as well, but in Hebrew there's no, there's no question marks. So these could also be translated as statements as much as they are questions. Did I indeed, or I did indeed, reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar and to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. So notice what God does. He says, I, have, I came and in mercy I revealed myself to you. I let the nations walk in darkness, and yet your house, the house of Levi, was of the small number of those to whom I revealed myself. That's a mercy. And then second, he went, not only did he reveal himself, he went beyond that, and he says, and I made them priests, like we were talking about earlier, that awesome responsibility. I let you be a priest in my house when you should have died. And then thirdly, not only did he make them priests, he says he gave them his offerings by fire. That's a reference to the sacrifices. These people got to live off of the very sacrifices that prefigured the work of the Messiah. They got to live off of that. God has just recounted his past mercies to the house of Eli. And he does so in order to establish the weightiness of the charge that comes next. And so we read next in verse 29, God's charge against Eli. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourself on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Notice he repeats there the the charge of violating the first commandment, of exalting his sons in his affections above God. Now nothing in our text suggests that Eli actually participated in the physical stealing of the meat from worshipers. We don't have any evidence of that at all. But what God says here does seem to imply that Eli was eating the meat that had been stolen. Because he includes him. Why do you and your sons profane my offerings by eating these things? And so I want you to notice that in God's mind, there's a progression here for Eli. First, he tolerated evil. He tolerated what his sons were doing. And after he tolerated it, the inevitable outworking of his son's actions was that the only meat available to be eaten was stolen meat. And where does Eli get his meat from? The sacrifices. And so Eli's got to eat. So he's put himself in a bind. He's got to live and eat food, and his food comes from the sacrifices, but the only sacrificial food available to the man Eli now is stolen food. Why is he in that position? Because he didn't deal with the, the sins of his sons in the first place. And so then he chooses to eat, and he begins to partake in the fruitless works of darkness. You see how that goes here? He refuses to obey, he gets himself in a bind, and then he's tempted to sin against God himself. 
And so that's the charge, that you are sharing in the sins of your sons by refusing to obey my command to punish them. That's the charge, and that's the guilty verdict from God. And then finally, God gives his sentence upon Eli. What will happen? And this is in verses 30 to 36. I'll just read a couple of portions of it. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that you and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress you'll look with an envious eye on the prosperity on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I will not cut off from my altar will be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And notice, God actually says that he had made a covenant with the house of Eli. He said, I swore that you should be coming in and out as a priest forever. But now, no more. Well, how can God do that? How can God make a covenant promise and then take it back on the other hand? Because as we know, there are two different types of covenants in Scripture. There are conditional covenants where in order for God to do his part, you must obey certain things. And then there are unconditional covenants, such as we are under in the new covenant, where God simply does and we receive everything. God had made a conditional covenant with Eli that he would be a priest. But if he and his sons disobeyed, God was within his rights to cut him off. And this is fulfilled in the man Abiathar. You may briefly remember that uh, when Saul goes to slaughter all the priests at Nod in 1 Samuel, I think it's chapter 15 or so, uh, one man survives, and it's Abiathar. And he's a son of Eli's house. And he flees, and he remains priest for a while, and he mourns over all of the slaughtering of Eli's house. But then in the beginning of the reign of Solomon in 1 Kings 2, Abiathar is then cut off by Solomon, and he is uh, no longer allowed to be a priest for some of the actions that he would later Undertake, And the, the author of 1 Kings tells us that this happened so that the word spoken against Eli might be fulfilled. So God did act, and he did cut off Eli's house. And the reason he's doing it is because he will destroy and cut off whatever comes in to corrupt his kingdom. The authors of Scripture ask, what will you do for your great name, O Lord? His response is, I will destroy those who blaspheme my name, and my assembly. And for God, it's not even difficult. He says, I lightly esteem them. It is a light thing. Those who despise me, I view them as, as, a, as a, you know, a tumbleweed in the wind. It's nothing to me. And it's no small thing of God to say that of one of you. Now, if you are a son of God, he will lovingly discipline you. But woe to those to whom, of whom God can say, I lightly esteem that person. If that's God's response to you, then your destruction is not far behind. And so that's God's first response. He cuts off the idolaters. But his second response to uh, to Satan's kingdom warfare is that he raises up a faithful servant in his place. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, to the eyes of all those watching what's going on in the tabernacle, this is a dire situation. Satan has infiltrated God's house, and it seems like God will probably forsake them all in judgment. But there is actually something interesting about the way that this portion of Scripture is kind of laid out that we haven't really looked at yet. We've been focusing on Eli and his sons, 
But in between these sort of horrific episodes of sin and judgment, there's all these curious repeated references to the boy Samuel. It keeps going on. Uh, Notice, back up in verse 11 when this whole thing starts, we, we read, the boy, this is Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Okay, then, you, then it jumps to the narrative about uh, Eli's sons and all that they're doing. And then as soon as it's described the wickedness of Eli's sons, in verse 18, it goes back and says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And then we go back to, God's, uh, or to Eli's rebuke of his sons and the revelation that, that they're committing prostitution. And then in verse 26, the young man Samuel continued to grow in stature and favor with the Lord and with man. And then we have in verses 27 to 36, God's rebuke and judgment upon Eli. And then, the very uh, next verse after that, chapter 3, verse 1, the young man, Samuel, was ministering before the Lord. You see how it's going back and forth? Samuel, wickedness. Samuel, wickedness. Samuel, wickedness. Samuel. Now, why would the, why would the author arrange this in this way? Why this back and forth dynamic? Because God wants us to see that he is responding to the corruption. Every time there's a corruption, God does have a response to that. And the response is that God is raising up a man who is a true minister, a true priest, and a true worshiper of him after his own heart. So then briefly, how is Samuel actually a response to all the wickedness that we've seen? Well, first, the ordained priests, as we've already shown, were not ministering to the Lord. They weren't carrying out their duties. And yet Samuel does. It says in verse 11, the boy ministered to or before the Lord in the presence of Eli. And so this is a reminder that true worship has not completely expired. Secondly, God has uh, come and he has banished Eli's household from his presence forever. And to the mind of a true Israelite, would the nation follow? Is this a sign that we are soon to be also cut off because Eli and his house have been cast out? And the response of the text is no. For there is one who is still being accepted in the presence of God and who will continue before God in his presence. And thirdly, the priests are profaning religion in the eyes of men. And yet we read in verse 26 that the young man Samuel was continuing to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with man. You see, God has put this boy there and it says he's growing in favor in the eyes of men so that gradually they can see that all is not yet lost. God is still acting. He's still working. And so think about what this teaches us about God's ordinary ways of preserving his kingdom. Sometimes God acts in the extraordinary and the miraculous, particularly in the Old Testament. You know, he, he parts the Red Sea. He, uh, he rains fire down from heaven, you know, in the days of Elijah. But most of the time... God is working behind the scenes from man's perspective in the ordinary uh, workings out of his own providences and in the everyday operations of his spirit upon his people to produce kingdom fruit. And so as a faithful worshiper of God, while you may have been tempted to despair at the corruption of God's kingdom as it manifests itself in the tabernacle, what you may not have seen was that just behind the curtain of the tent God was raising up a young boy who would restore some semblance of righteousness to the land when his day came. This is part of God's ordinary working. And this part of the text is a call for faith in God on the part of his saints that no matter how discouraging the external circumstances of his kingdom and church may appear, God is still there. He's still working. And you may not be able to see it, 
But the fruit will eventually emerge. God will bring forth the fruit. We have only to trust in Him. This is the God that we serve. As, as uh, Cody ended up preaching part of my sermon for me, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. He will. He will raise up something and defend his name. He will defend his name and his kingdom. Now, I had to cut out, a, for time's sake, I had to cut out a section where I sort of traced this continuing warfare pattern around the tabernacle and the temple all the way up into the days of Christ. You just follow that through the Old Testament. There's just all these references to all of a sudden these Asherahs are popping up in the Holy of Holies and some foreign king comes in and plunders all the goods out of God's house. Satan is just always attacking this thing and God is always responding. But even if we flash forward to the days of our Lord, our Lord Jesus, we see that even in his day, after the the destruction of the temple in 586 and the rebuilding of it and the sort of the reestablishing of the people in the land, Many of the same pollutions and corruptions from this text have re-emerged, reincarnated themselves in the days of our Lord. God's house is once again filled with worshipers of mammon. You think about when Jesus goes in and drives out the people in the temple. What does he say? You have turned my father's house of prayer into a den of robbers. There is a general lack of reverential religion amongst the people. Oh, you've got your Simeons and your Annas, but for the most part, there doesn't seem to be a, a whole... Uh, full-throated devotion to the Lord on the part of the people. Rome, an outside empire, controls the people. They're not a shining light to the nations. The nations are dictating to them how they're going to live and what they're going to do. And once again, oppressive shepherds are binding people's consciences with burdens too heavy to bear while they themselves will not lift a finger. And so in our Lord's day, it seems to all outward appearance that the kingdom of God has suffered unbearable corruption once again. And yet, Luke tells us that out in rural Galilee, out past where anybody, whether it be a Roman citizen or even people within Israel, would have any meaningful regard or respect for, there is another young boy who is growing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. The exact language that is used here of Samuel, Luke takes it and applies it to our Lord. And why does he do that? Because he wants to tell us that God's ultimate response to Satan has finally arrived. Just as Samuel was raised up in response to the corruptions that were present in his day, so our Lord is raised up as God's response to all of Satan's assaults. And he hasn't come in pomp and glory. He hasn't come in a way where you can say, ah yes, there it is, or, or there is God's clear response. God works on him for 30 years in his ordinary providences and the ordinary operations of his spirit upon a man, and he raises him up until his time has come, and then he deals the final blow to Satan's kingdom. That's what God does. That's the teaching of this passage. Satan will assault the place God has set his name, but God will respond, and he has done so decisively in Christ Jesus. Now, for the application. The tabernacle is gone. The temple is gone. But the kingdom is not. And the premier manifestation of God's kingdom is the place that he has now put his name and his spirit, which I would say are kind of one and the same thing in the scripture, to dwell. And that is his church. We are now, the church is the preeminent visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on this earth. 
If you want tangible evidence that God's Spirit is still at work, you need only look at the gatherings of His church and the fruit that is produced therein. And there you'll have it. And so given that that is the case, we can expect, based on the clear teaching of God's Word, that Satan's attacks will center now around the visible expression of God's church upon the earth. It's local church, as was hammered home last week, not universal. Satan can't get his hands on God, and Satan can't get his hands on the universal church in abstract. And so he seeks above all to corrupt visible, tangible, local manifestations of God's kingdom. He seeks to attack the local church. And brothers, that makes us ground zero for the assaults of Satan. Right here in this room, that makes us ground zero for the assaults of Satan. And so therefore, we must develop a conscious and acute awareness that Satan has asked to have this particular assembly that he might sift it like sand. That's what Satan has done. If he cannot kill us, whether it be from you know, a tyrannical government or, or whatever, then he will seek to do what? Corrupt us from within. That's what he's going to seek to do. That's his goal. And it's not some abstraction. He wants this assembly, the one right here, the one that your bottoms are sitting in in a pew. This is the one he wants. He wants other ones too. He would love lots of other assemblies. But you're a part of this one. And you need to know that he wants the place that you're currently sitting There's not a person in this room who has reached glory. And therefore, there is enough remaining corruption in, even if we take out false sons, just the saints of this room, there is enough remaining corruption that if it is not checked, it can destroy us ten times over in just one person. If we are not diligent and we are not watchful, we will be consumed. Not, this stuff just feels... So out there, I, I, I'm trying to think of ways to bring it down and make it more tangible to press the point home. I almost wish that we could have one of those, uh, those moments at, at the, the little city of Dothan where Elisha's servant, uh, finally his eyes are open and he gets to see what's actually happening around him. And the, he sees the, the hosts of God, the armies of God are all uh, ready to pour in at a moment's notice and to defend him and Elisha from the, the assaults of, of wicked men. I wish that we could see just for a moment the actual warfare that is ongoing in heavenly places over even just this assembly, much less the entire church. Because if we could see that for a moment, we would not hesitate to affirm that we must be watchful and that we are in true, real danger from the assaults of our enemy. He wants you. He wants me. He wants us. And we, the household of God, are the pillar and foundation of the truth. And how did the stewards of God's house in our text today cause it to fall? They would not obey the basic commands of the Lord. They wouldn't obey just basic, simple commands. Eli had a command from God, punish your children. But he reasoned his way out of it. He thought, if I just kind of stay back here and... And just hope for the best. I don't really have to go all the way through with that stuff that God said in his law about, you know, bringing them and stoning them. That would be kind of uncomfortable. So he reasoned his way out of it. I love him too much. That would be harsh. That would be cruel. And so that was all the opportunity that the evil one needed. 
He just needed one of God's saints to fail to obey his commands, and the door was slung wide open, and he came straight in. So then what about our assembly? How do we fail to obey God's basic commands and in so doing set ourselves up for a tremendous fall? Before I finish this out with this last point, let me say this. I wrote the content, most of the content of this application several weeks ago before the events of our most previous instance of church discipline. I think I have two or three witnesses that can corroborate that. Now, I strongly considered, after things that have already been said uh, over the past couple of weeks, I strongly considered going back and scrapping this application and rewriting one from scratch, lest I be accused of beating a dead horse or or just shooting at low-hanging fruit or something like that. But I chose not to. And the reason I chose not to is because I want you to understand what has happened recently and real things that we are really facing in the light of the context provided by today's text, in the light of this broader kingdom warfare, we've got to learn to interpret what happens here in the light that the scriptures provide it to us. It's not just random occurrences. It's part of a bigger picture. So then, obviously, recently, we have had a situation where people were noticing things that were happening with a particular family, and instead of obeying the commands that our Lord clearly gave, where he said, if your brother sins, go rebuke him, we instead, it seems for a period of potentially years for a number of us, did not do that, but instead just made mental notes and mental notes and mental notes and allowed them to accumulate in our minds, and the inevitable result of that was that in the hearts of of some of us, frustration was building. As we saw things we didn't like that were happening or that we were questioning, but many people did not actually go and follow the Lord's basic command, just like Eli didn't. And so then they found themselves in an awkward position because the the tension was building in in some people's minds about wanting something, uh, a way to, to express your frustration, but you didn't want to go and actually address it the way God had said So instead, you went and you found another outlet and you talked to somebody else about it because you had to feel like you were getting it out. The frustration was was too much to contain. So when you don't obey one command, it inevitably leads to a temptation to violate God's law in another area. And then all of a sudden, inevitably, a public instance of possible or maybe even concrete sin emerges and then the whole thing just kind of spills out all over the place. And so you you can see what Satan is attempting to do there. We now have a family who's gone. Maybe it was a false son in our midst. That's a possibility. But even if that was the case, and I believe justly what we did was, was in accordance with Matthew 18. But we're still here. And there are still, it seems, some pent up frustrations and difficulties in, in some of our hearts. And so if that's the case, then we are ripe to be sifted by the evil one because all he has to do is to come in and to begin to play on some of the remaining corruptions that are in our own hearts. And the inevitable result will be that we eat each other alive and that we are questioning one another and that we are angry with one another. And if we 
allow these frustrations to continue and don't start obeying God's basic commands, then we will end up in this exact same situation, however long. It will inevitably come again, and the fallout will be even greater. And in four years, and this is not alarmism, there will not be a Covenant Bible Church. We're a small group. We can only handle so much of the the lack of following God's commands and the inevitable results that come. Why do you think churches split? It's not because they don't like the color of the carpets. It's because this kind of stuff goes on and people don't obey God's law and it inevitably leads to consequences. Why do you think Jesus told us to go to our brother? Because he knows what will happen in our hearts if we don't do it. He knows the, the profanation that it will bring upon his church. All because we will not obey God's basic commands. And so if we will not turn and we will not repent... Before I say that, don't comfort yourselves with the the statement of the scriptures that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Because while that's true, all of the elect of God will be gathered to him. Ultimately, Christ will win. That's inevitable. We have no promise from our Lord that this particular assembly will last for any period of time. None whatsoever. In fact, we have a promise to the contrary, as Christ says in Revelation. If you will not repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand myself. And guess what? That church doesn't exist anymore, the one he said that of. It it was wiped away when the enemies of Islam came in, but uh, we won't get into that. But they don't exist anymore. And we are ripe for that same kind of fall. And so we need to turn, we need to repent. And we need to examine ourselves. Because this kind of stuff, this is how kingdom warfare is waged. It's not Armageddon. It's not that silly apocalypse stuff that you see all over TV. The real warfare is in what we just look at as kind of these everyday things where we're just like, yeah, do I really want to, that'd be kind of uncomfortable to do, you know, go talk to a brother or something like that. Just like Eli, yeah, do I really want to, and look what it did, and look what it'll do to us. So let's examine ourselves. Because there is a standard. There is a banner that's been lifted up. We will, Christ's church will ultimately be victorious. But we want to be here for the long run, and we don't want to profane his name. It's very simple. We obey his commands, and we love one another. That's all it is. So let's consider ourselves, and let's turn, and let's go to him in prayer now. Well, as we come to the Lord's table, we've been given some admonitions and exhortations to work to the the preservation of the assembly and its holiness, its consecration, to deal with our own hearts. As we consider the Lord's table and the cross of Christ, we have to be reminded that for all of our efforts, we act alone and in impotence without the virtue of Christ's death applied to our activities. We have to have His power in our actions. What happened when Christ was lifted up? The ruler of this world was cast out. Satan was defeated. That's the power that must be applied. We have to act diligently and we have to act always trusting in Christ, fixing our eyes upon the crucified Lamb. And so when we come to the Lord's table, this is a means of grace It's an opportunity for us to hold a piece of bread and a cup of juice 
and think. What do these things mean? And then pray. And think. And pray. Meditate. As we, as we hold the bread. And as we consume the bread. Has Christ's body not been given for me? As we drink the cup. Has His blood not been poured out for me? Then there is virtue. Has He not conquered? Then there is virtue. Lord, would You apply that virtue to me in my life. Satan has been rendered effectively powerless if we will lay hold upon that virtue. And the Lord's table is an opportunity for us to do that. So as the elements are distributed, give your attention to Christ crucified and His victory.